woman gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God bless America? No, no, no. Not God bless America. God damn America that's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating us citizens as less than human. God damn America as long as she tries to act like she is God and she is supreme. Welcome back to Left Thinker. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. A very hearty welcome to friend and brilliant man, Jack Jenkins, who has a new book, American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. Jack is not only brilliant, but he's also a master divinity, and he did it at Harvard, which which is really impressive to do to master divinity. Uh, apparently, I learned in this book that Al Gore failed to master divinity. He dropped out of, of Vanderbilt uh, Divinity School, but Jack True successfully story. mastered it. So in addition to mastering divinity, Jack has also been a reporter on all things religious and political for a number of years at Think Progress and the Religion News Service. So we're very happy to welcome him to talk about his new book and all the narratives of uh, prophetic vision and social justice uh, on a very important topic, which is the so-called religious left, a a term that's useful but contested, I'm sure, uh, and one that I think we need to talk about to better understand uh, both religion in this country and politics in this country, especially because the religious right seems to get all the attention and you know, a bold claim that, that Jack makes very early on, it seems like the religious left is indeed both the beating heart and the secret weapon of the left in American politics, which I thought, by the way, Jack, is a very cool juxtaposition, the heart and the weapon. So, yes. uh, yeah, maybe tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this project and a little bit about your background before we dive in. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you all so much for having me. As as your listeners may or may not know, I've known you all for a while and um, and, and equally have um, can have amazing things to say about you all and your brilliance and um, and how fun you can be. Uh, but uh, you met me. Um, uh, you met me later. And after I've done all these other things, because I, I before I became a religion reporter, as you noted, I did go to divinity school. Um, and I, and I, and I, and that led out of me growing up in the South. So I've been surrounded by religion, particularly Christianity, by virtue of growing up in the Southeast, um, you know, ever since I was born. And, you know, since then it kind of led into this overlapping interest in politics. And, you know, I, you know, when spending time in campaigns and then, um, later when I was in divinity school, saw a heavy overlap between the two. And saw how faith communities, you know, either try to exert influence over politics or politics tried to exert influence over religion or there were instances in which the two were completely indistinguishable. And I was always fascinated by that intersection. So I ended up going to divinity school and initially thought I was going to actually be a pastor at the time or at least thinking about the idea of ordination, but also was interested in the intersection of media, politics and religion. But I had never considered being a reporter and I actually ended up being a reporter by accident. I ended up getting an internship at the Religion News Service. Um, and, you know, when I showed up to work um, for the first couple of days, didn't really know how to write a story, but uh, slowly learned to do it. And one of the earliest stories that I worked on, one, some of the, this, the earliest um, pieces that I was able to produce for Religion News Service, like centered these communities that were progressive and religious. And part of that's because I had people that I knew who were involved in that. That was, This was around the era of the Occupy Wall Street movement of 2011. And um, and so I kind of fixated on these these communities that 
Um, quite frankly, I was often the only reporter there. And that can have two different reactions for a reporter. It, it can elicit two different reactions. One of them is that you are clearly at something that's not newsworthy. And the other is that you think maybe I'm on to something that nobody else is covering. And so um, from that, I eventually ended up becoming really interested in you know the religious left and what they're doing. And so over the course of um, the rest of my journalism career, first at Think Progress and then at Religion News Service, um, I kind of, you know, kind of dug into the, this community and this very diverse multi-faith community, um, it, you know, pecked at it over time before eventually was able to kind of roughly pull it together and into this book. Um, so it's in, in some ways this this book is a, you know a thing I've worked on in the last year, and in other words, in other ways it's something that I've been working on for several years as like this pet project. Nice. Yeah. Did, did American Prophets, um, when, when did that become the, the, the key or the through line for you? Because that, that's a very interesting introduction you have to at, at Occupy that uh, kind of maybe expands the, the imagination about what that might refer to, right? Right. Um, you know, as I as I mentioned in the introduction, I when I was at Occupy in Boston, in Boston, Massachusetts, where faith communities actually played um, a bigger role than you might have even found in other Occupy encampments in other parts of the country. They had a dedicated interfaith and faith space tent at Occupy Boston. And I stumbled upon it, um, you know, in, in and I write about that in the introduction. And I was kind of struck to find these faith groups that were singing and, you know, praying and worshiping in the midst of this Occupy encampment. And some of them were divinity school students that I knew, other people who were folks I knew through church circles or through um, interfaith circles. And, um, and it, it, I, I kind of talk about this in the book, how they made me make off, take off my shoes to enter into that space. And there's this kind of tradition in many religious communities that, you know, that's something you do when you go into a venerated place of worship. And it also echoes a lot of religious stories that happen throughout multiple different traditions that, you know, when you enter into a sacred space before God or gods, um, you remove your shoes. And the people who are most often asked to do that in those stories are Prophets, and so um, so that 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 idea stuck with me at the time, but it became reverberated throughout um, the rest of my reporting because I I came to learn that many people who are part of this religious left movement will invoke what's called the prophetic tradition, um, kind of talking about you know merging their faith and their activism. And others, you know, there's actually uh, one organization called Faith in Action that's also um, had a previous name called Pico, where for a while they actually, um, and they still do, if you'll, you'll go to some of their gatherings and they'll have this chant or this axiom that they are um, prophets of the resistance. And it's mentioned in a full line that says, are you a um, prophet of the resistance or a chaplain to the empire? Um, the implication <laughs> being you want to be <laughs> a prophet that's that's awesome. of the resistance. And so, again, prophet is an imperfect term. Um, different faith communities have different understandings of that, and some don't have any at all. But it's something that comes up a lot in these activist circles um, that prophet is, or at least the prophetic tradition is something that people um, want to claim pretty fervently. Because as we know, in many religious traditions, prophets aren't necessarily the most celebrated in their time, but they are the ones who are calling out whoever the people in power are, um, sometimes from street corners and sometimes in the halls of power. So that's kind of where that idea came from. Nice. Yeah, it's it's a, a, a pretty cool thing I noticed in thinking of the religious left as such and the religious right as such, I noticed in your book um, a very cool, I think a necessary blurring of certain lines and categories, um, right? Whether it's those, those Occupy people who had kind of this similar ritual to, um, 
it's kind of biblical and, and other religious uh, rites. But but also the, the blurring of the lines in the same way, maybe that people who say there's the economy as if it's separate from politics and human beings. Right. Uh, the, the, there's a blurring of traditions, a blurring of uh, lines that that are all actually brought together in a kind of unity of interest to fight for justice. And even on the other side, there's this kind of uh, interspersing of uh, the religious right with kind of white nationalism and and, um, and other political and, and religious traditions. So so I thought that it's very interesting to kind of explore through these stories uh, and in kind of a chronological history, right, starting in, in about 2003. Um, how different human beings uh, associate on these political and religious divides. Um, I don't know. It's, it's very clarifying for me. So uh, I don't know, Ryan, where, you want to jump in at a certain point in, in history? Because we could, we could just move through some of the, the very interesting stories and, and time periods uh, and the fault lines therein. What do you think? Maybe we could start with, uh, you know, sort of from the top down in terms of uh, – you know, political, uh, you know, power structures, you, you have a good, uh, you know, towards the beginning of the book, a good chapter about how kind of religious groups were uh, one of the key forces that got the Affordable Care Act over the line. And, you know, you talk a lot about how, you know, Barack Obama th- uh, threaded this needle about, you know, his uh, pastor, Jeremiah Wright, versus, you know, his uh, his uh, grandmother who had sort of some, you know, lingering kind of r- racial retrograde attitudes, um, which is all well and good. But uh, one one sort of question that jumped out at me was the the difference between the political energy and mobilization of that level, that top level uh what you might call religious left, like the the faith um, and the sort of, I would say, generally mainline Protestant uh, type of churches that are sort of associated with democratic elites and and how that energy is just not even in the same ballpark as what you see on the far right. Um, and why you, you know, because the Affordable Care Act, for all the good it did, you know, expanding Medicaid, that was a great idea. Like, it was a pretty weak policy, I think we can safely conclude. Um, and so, you know, why, uh, what explains the, the, the sort of the lack of passion, would, would you say, you know, the, 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 the lack of a sort, sort of like vigorous assertion of, of, uh, you know, the, the both, you know, political objectives and, you know, sort of some religious fervor to say that, you know, uh, you you would think that uh, if you're a Christian, the level of economic inequality and poverty in this country would be a moral obscenity. But you don't really see, you know, top level Democratic politicians talking or about it like that or acting as if it's a really serious problem deserving of, you know, serious attention. What, what do you think? Yeah, no, see, this is I think this is an excellent question, because like you said, it kind of exposes the divide between some of the groups I I chronicle in the book and, you know, who are these like grassroots activists and some of these people who are attached more to the mechanisms of power. Right. So as you have um, these this series of groups that were kind of formed around 2003, 2004 um, through initiatives that were uh, from uh, initiated by people like John Podesta 
and um, people attached to the Center for American Progress, but also a few others and things that spun off from that, who were really these kind of inside the beltway, who try to create this inside the beltway power player structure for progressive faith communities, right? So you get groups like Faith in Public Life that I write about in the book that, you know, we're trying to orchestrate this broader progressive faith movement. And all of that's an attempt at some level to try to counterbalance the, the influence of the religious right. And in the context of the Affordable Care Act, it, it turned out that, you know, the, the Catholic nuns in particular um, became this really important and, and, you know, influential force in all of that. But one thing that gets exposed by that fight is, one, how powerful Catholic nuns can be, um, but also how it, it looks and works so differently from the religious right and doesn't have the same staying power. Because something that you kind of mentioned, Ryan, is that, like, you know, why don't you see someone like um, Podesta from the top? You know, he definitely cited his faith. He, he says his faith is um, what inspired his progressivism. But why isn't he going as stalwartly as you might find in a religious right crusader? And I think part of that goes to how, um, one, the power structure of the Democratic Party and the, and the progressivism in general is structured. But two, how different the right and the left often are, because the truth is, you know, if you, irrespective of faith, irrespective of religion, there is nothing on the left that is uniformly organized or, or has a, as um, as sophisticated of a machine politics um, uh, Mac, uh, machine politics apparatus as you find in the religious right. Nothing rivals the religious right on the left. And so, and I think part of that is because the left is organized so differently. It's more often, particularly at this point in history, what I found in my reporting, and I think a lot of people who cover the left might find, you know, the left, um, particularly now, is often a coalition of coalitions. And while that's generally true of the right as well, I would argue there are more competing and intense voices than you, um, on the left than you will find on the right. And that just makes the, the, the relative hegemony on the right makes it relatively easier um, to kind of organize and actualize on a few ideas, whereas the left is this constant debate. And I think, you know, one of the, it's a great pride of progressives, including religious progressives, to have that debate. But it can become fragmenting and frustrating in moments like the Affordable Care Act, because in some ways, you know, that was the great triumph of um, people like these Catholic nuns who, to be clear, weren't necessarily happy with the bill. They um, arguably wanted more than they got out of it anyway, but they knew that they had to get it across the finish line. They had to get something passed. But he, but as soon and then as soon as it was passed, faith groups played a big role in trying to get people enrolled in it, et cetera, et cetera. But there was never a period where there wasn't criticism of it, where there weren't folks who said that well, why can't we do more? And now you're in this era in, um, in 2020 where progressive faith leaders have been consistently calling for there to be more done in this space than the Affordable Care Act um, allowed. And I, and I think it, it kind of gets back to a meta question of whether the left and the religious left. Without a, a common enemy like they have right now in Trump um, or at a local level, if, it, if you're talking about, like, say, North Carolina in 2014, when the Moral Mondays movement um, showed up, led by Reverend William Barber, who I chronicle in the book, they had a common enemy in the uh, in the re deeply Republican and deeply conservative legislator there. When you don't have that, you know, how well does do these activists and does the left in general function? Are they able to get past their differences to get something done? Is that is that you know, speaking to the question you're asking? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and this, you know, maybe as a quick follow up, um, could, could you tell us, you know, about some of these more? You, you have a great chapter about um, Reverend Barber in North Carolina and and how he 
uh, did, you know, from a much, much lower, you know, place in the sort of, you know, national political totem pole or whatever, uh, pursue uh, a, a progressive lefty agenda with a vigorous moral passion, you know, including himself being repeatedly arrested. So, so could you tell that story for us? Yeah, I, I think I think it's a really interesting one because I think it speaks to a lot of how, at their strongest, the the religious left organizes and and um, assembles power at the present day. So fast, and rewind back to 2012, 2013, um, and you get this uh, elected um, uh, state legislator in North Carolina that caught a lot of people by surprise, and it was this deeply conservative um, state legislator that people didn't expect. I mean, relative to the rest of the South, North Carolina had kind of held this um, relatively moderate position. It was more purple, at least in, in its um, state-level politics, than a lot of the other southern states. But suddenly, as part of the Tea Party wave and around there, you had this deeply conservative legislator, and it immediately started implementing a series of policies um, that you know really, some around abortion and other things that really caught people by surprise. And so you had this pastor, this small town pastor, Reverend William Barber, um, who had already kind of made his way into the NAACP in that state. And he had had kind of gotten into that position of heading up the NAACP there by by saying, you know, we need to do more than just have, you know, dinner parties or just kind of, you know, kind of just, you know, know, present the idea of being the NAACP. We really need to dig deep into policy. But when you suddenly had the elected state legislator there in North Carolina, he took it upon himself to start organizing a protest. And he used this very traditional model, um, but with to great effect, which is that he would assemble a group of people usually those who represented the policies that they wanted to discuss, um, whether that's health care um, or poverty, et cetera, you know, these exempl- or exemplars from the community, including lots of clergy. And they would have them go to the state capitol and protest and refuse to leave until they were arrested. So at the end of each one of these protests, you'd see, you know, some pastors or some elderly folks who were ill um, or you meet these pillars of the community being, you know, walked out and ha- with their hands tied behind their back and being t- driven off um, by police. And he did that, you know, every Monday and, he, and every time he did it, he got more and more arrests. And after a few of these, they got more and more press. And then they got more and more people gathering outside to protest in um, solidarity with them. And by the end, by 2013 and 2014, the largest liberal protests in the United States were these Moral Monday um, protests in North Carolina led by a clergy member, Reverend William Barber. And this continued on to the point where on, on election night 2016, which was a real dark night for a lot of progressives and liberals and Democrats, there was this one bright spot, and that was the dethroning of the Republican governor in North Carolina. And multiple pundits, multiple analysts attribute um, the unseating of that governor to the Moral Monday movement that Barber helped shepherd into being. And it's important to note that the way that he did that was he used a strategy that he he often refers to as fusion organizing, which is really just you know what other people might call intersectionality, which is saying, hey, if you're a group that's affected by this state legislator um, and it affects you negatively, it probably also affects people who are um, really sick and struggling with health care. It probably also um, affects people who are struggling with housing. And those folks all show up. And so these different uh, movements attach themselves to that movement. And so it became this great outcry of anguish that was able to exact some political power. And as I note in the book, 
the, the next um, the next morning after election night in 2016, Reverend Barber called up one of his associates and said, America is North Carolina now. And so, mm-hmm. you know, enter into this moment where um, he saw and I think a lot of other activists saw the Moral Monday movement as this kind of test case for what the resistance movement theoretically could be um, throughout the course of Trump's presidency. Yeah, no, no question. And, and, you know, I think you, you see, you see the dichotomy there, um, in that the, the, the governor that did end up winning in North Carolina is this, what's his name? Cooper? Um, yeah. yeah. Ryan, that's Uh, your name. That's your name, Ryan. No relation. Or maybe, I don't know. Maybe there is some relation. I haven't actually looked into it, but, but he, he's, he seems like a sort of decent guy, but he is not a, he is not a, Reverend Barber-esque sort of like crusader, you know, somewhat feckless and not particularly aggressive. Um, And so uh, I don't know. Do do you see I mean, I guess I haven't really been paying that close attention to to, uh, you know, North Carolina over the past, what, almost four years now. Um, Has that movement continued to uh, exert leverage as you as you know, as you say, without the specter of this, you know, dread Republican legislature, uh, you know, uh, being a sort of like, you know, focus point for for people's energy. Well, I, I, I think there's a couple different things there. One is that and, I, and one thing I kind of point to in the book is that there's a different thing between what the activists demand for and what they ultimately get at the end of the day. Those are two different things. And I think, you know, most activists are disappointed with the results of their activism because, uh, particularly in when it, when it's really large, um, difficult fights, because those often, often take a lot longer than one, um, legislative session or one election cycle. And, um, and they often point back to a lot of religious left activists to various stripes point back to the civil rights movement as this decades long project as opposed to something that happens in one or two years. That having been said, you know, I do think you raise an interesting point, which is that since the Moral Monday movement, no, they did not get a, a, a Reverend William Barber figure, um, you know, it, to fill out the state legislator. They did get a more moderate legislator. They did get a more moderate governor, which is better than the alternative from their perspective. But it is not an exemplar of what they um, of what they fought for. Moreover, uh, since that time, while Barber has certainly never ignored North Carolina since then, he has turned his attention to the national stage. He has become this national figure. I mean, he in 2016 he spoke at the at the Democratic National Convention. You know, he has since spoken. I mean, one thing I don't know if you noticed in the book, he he shows up a lot in my chapters. He's one of the few like things that threads all these different movements together, and I think that's intentional by him and his team because they kind of that that leads into the kind of fusionist organizing that he's preaching, which is that you need to find a way to amass these different movements into the same space. And I think right now, what he would argue, I think, and, and also the co-chair of um, the, the Poor People's Campaign, Liz Theo Harris, they would argue that they're now in what they call a generational project, that their, um, their attempts to try to change the conversation about economics, about race, about how those things connect to stuff like climate change um, and, you know, LGBTQ rights and women's rights, et cetera, that that conversation is something that they're having and all these different activists um, protests they're having all across the country and these teach-ins, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think one, one of the ways that I think they would answer your question is to say, no, it didn't suddenly turn everything over overnight. In fact, 
what it did is while there were some specific gains that that movement and those and movements attached to it have gotten um, both on election night 2016 and since, what it really kind of exposed was how much more work there was to do that to address these inequalities. It really was going to require a, you know, according to um, Reverend Theo Harris and Reverend Barber, a generational project. Now, this has been interesting because this has since become a point of tension between uh, the Poor People's Campaign and other activists, some of whom think that its approach, which is this kind of longer slog of, you know, again, teach-ins and educational moments and constant protests um, without a very, with, with often without a very specific policy ask, that they're, they're, they're saying, you know, this isn't getting as much done as we would like. You know, we want to get a specific policy across the finish line, either at the federal level or the state level. Why aren't you focusing on that? Um, so this has actually become an intra-activism debate of how best to go about that project of getting – how do you go back um, – how do you end up with a governor that, that might be the most you know, progressive person that, that Barber or a lot of the people he organized with might want? And I think their answer is, well, it's going to take a lot of time, and we're going to have to start you know, creating our own community, as it were, um, to help get those folks elected. But that's, again, a longer project that there doesn't seem to be a specific answer to. Absolutely. It strikes me that, like, in one sense, the left has always had a harder task than the right, because the the right is supporting and propping up uh, the powers that be, right? And and so, like, to the extent that, um, you know, the religious right has emphasized nationalism and being white, or, or those are the sources of support, and, like, the prosperity gospel has uh, aided and abetted in propping up capitalism, um, it, it's, it's pretty easy to keep everyone united when, like, the government can do whatever it wants and capital can do whatever it wants as long as it kind of tosses uh, the red meat um, to, to the religious right on, on cultural issues. But the left is suffering, actually, all kinds of injustice and is trying to figure out how to combat all of the injustice, um, which – you know, is, is hitting all kinds of marginalized groups in, in disparate ways. And, and there are questions of strategy and tactics and so forth. Um, and so so for me, what's really interesting is looking at, say, let's, let's dive into like Obama and Jeremiah Wright, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there are really interesting things in the chapter there, because I, I think, you know, for those that, that lived through it, Obama got kind of raked over the coals for his clinging to guns and religion quote. Um, and then he got praised for his race speech, which kind of uh, helped him get past the, the kind of fiery comments that Jeremiah Wright, uh, his pastor, got him in trouble for. Uh, and, and I think looking back, actually, it's uh, it's Obama's clinging to guns and religions, you know, talk that that actually was unfairly treated. And I think Jeremiah Wright was treated unfairly. And a lot of black radicals I know say the same thing. So so let's let's go back to that and talk about that, because that kind of goes to the intersection of theology and liberal left politics a little bit. Uh, and I think it's worth diving into. So so maybe talk to us about um, how how faith and politics um I don't know what what uh, what were those incidents in, in, involving and, and um, maybe we could talk about that. Well, for the record, I think what's been interesting about the the guns and religion comment is while I think um, a lot of political analysis um, analysts would say you know that was certainly not artfully phrased. It was prob- it was deeply insensitive to a lot of people who occupy that space and Hillary Clinton very quickly turned that into a talking point in her own rallies. You know, saying you know kind of turning that on Obama very quickly. 
Um, and I'm, I kind of talk about in, in the book how, how, you know, Obama had to spit, had to pivot pretty quickly and lean on his own say, you know, I do respect people who are religious, et cetera, et cetera. The core, I mean, there, there, I have heard people argue that, you know, there is, you know, if you, if you step back and look at his comments as a political analysis that right. one, like, and, and can reinterpret it as what would be a really strong message in this region. Um, there have been people who have argued that Trump's campaign in 2016 just, just reversed what was yeah. seen as a negative thing that Trump said, and then you know it just framed all of those as positive things, like the Second Amendment is very good, and then you know in, invoking Christian nationalism in those spaces, and that actually proved very um, uh, you know proficient um, for Trump to be able to shore up a base in those states. And so there's something that some argue that if you if you know maybe um, Obama por- phrased it poorly and you know was not very politically deft in what happened in that moment, there was some element of truth in terms of what could be politically expedient in those areas. And so, yes, I mean, again, you know, the idea that, that Obama, who about that point, for our made, younger listeners, for, for the younger listeners, would you mind just saying what he said? Yeah. Um, the, so, so if I recall correctly, um, Obama was at a, uh, at a fundraiser and, and I believe he was in a fundraiser in California, which, you know, at the time was just unthinkable. Um, for, for someone to kind of, who was being at that point in time cast as an elitist. Um, and which Obama was um, constantly, uh, told he was an elitist to, uh, apparently he referred to, you know, basically working class, um, workers in, in industrial towns in the Midwest as, you know, I think the whole quote was, see if I can remember this, they get bitter, they cling to guns or religion or antipathy to people who aren't like them or anti-immigrant sentiment or anti-trade sentiment as a way to explain their frustrations. Um, which again, you know, that's putting the blame on those people, but it's certainly true that anti-immigrant sentiment and anti-trade sentiment and religion and a, a fervency for the Second Amendment and guns was like a deep part of Trump's campaign in 2016. So, right. um, and particularly targeting voters in those areas. Um, so, uh, but anyway, but so yeah, I, I think that, you know, what Obama had to do in that moment was pivot and you know, lean and fall back on a lot of rhetoric that he had done, um, that he had delivered about religion and how um, how important that religion was and is to him. And you know, this this idea that you know he he had to say, no, I don't hate religion, which of course is like it, in many ways looking back an absurd criticism, um, but it was what he had to deal with at the time. Now, the Jeremiah Wright scandal um, was was a little bit different. And that, you know, he, he was the, the audacity of hope. The title of his I'm going to run for president book that Obama wrote was a reference to a sermon by Jeremiah Wright. Like he he was he was a central figure in um, Obama's religious life. It was his church that um, that Obama came to Jesus quite literally in Chicago. And so then when you had Jeremiah Wright, you know, deliver, uh, these sermons were unearthed of him. You know, kind of, I think the one that really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way was when he, you know, referred to 9-11 as these chickens coming home to roost, things like that. Um, that this was seen as deeply disrespectful at the time and that, you know, that Obama had to, uh, you know, really distance himself from this figure. Um, and, and what was, I do think it was interesting that Obama didn't actually, the, the, the big speech that he gave after that, um, that he gave after that was, was, uh, um, him saying his race, what's often called his race speech, in which right. he dismissed Wright's comments, but refused to dismiss Wright himself. 
Um, and so the but but which but to your point, what I think is interesting is, you know, as of 2020, some of the things that Jeremiah um, said, I mean, one of them was that um, he kind of said uh, that, you know, African-Americans shouldn't sing God bless America, but sing God damn America. Um, you know, these are these 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 wouldn't necessarily be out of place in a lot of activist circles today. Um, you know, stalwartly criticizing the United States of America even within religious tradition is not new. Um, no, and it was, right. and it, it, and it predated, and it predated yeah. right by, you know, decades, I mean, this, if not centuries. This is just like straight up liberation theology. I mean, which is a, you know, a complicated thing in itself, but this is, this is not a new thing. No, I mean, you know, you can, you can go back, you know, one, one, one of the more famous figures I talk about in the book, Malcolm X, you know, the, uh, a lot of his rhetoric invoking faith was deeply critical of the United States. And people often forget how, how critical Martin Luther King was, even in his own rhetoric of the United States of America. They'll skip over the parts of his sermons that are deeply critical of the American experiment. Now they, they, they have a, a more tinge of hope attached to them, but like it was, there was a deep and long tradition in faith communities in the United States of, of multiple races and traditions and, and dispensations that, um, that, that are deeply critical of the United States and say the kind, and preach the kind of things that you heard in Jeremiah Wright's church. Now, politically, this became a little complicated for Obama because he gave that whole speech and then Jeremiah Wright continued to preach the way that he had preached in the past. He was not going to be, um, he's not going to be cowed by this, this, um, speech. And so Trump, I mean, so, you know, things we've heard, you know, Trump criticized pastors um, today for by people who would say the opposite in the um, conservative direction, you know, um, in the same way that Obama today it said he had, you know, he had to dismiss himself from Jeremiah Wright and he actually cut ties with the church. And throughout the rest of his time and when he became president, he didn't actually work worship at a UCC church as he did when he was running for president. But I do think there is a really interesting conversation to be had to go back to the controversy around Jeremiah Wright and look at it through 2020 eyes. Right. Yeah. And then the reason I, I link those two just very briefly is because like, it, the context for the clinging to guns of religion, I think, is important. He was asked, like, why do these people who clearly their economic interests would align with the Democratic Party, why do they keep voting Republican? And so like, yeah, his I response can, uh, I, I uh, can read yeah. it to you here. Um, the, 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 the setup to the quote is um, you go into these small towns in Pennsylvania and like a, a lot of small towns in the Midwest, the jobs have been gone now for 25 years and nothing's replaced them. And they fell through the Clinton administration and the Bush administration. And each successive administration has said that somehow these communities are going to regenerate and they have not. And it's not surprising that they then get bitter, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. And that context is really important. And the Jerem so so the reason I brought it up in context of the Jeremiah Wright is because like Jeremiah Wright is preaching about the power structure. So when he says goddamn America, he doesn't mean like Americans. He means the power structures that are oppressive that need to be undone and, and, and fought, right? And like Obama was pointing out the power structures that made people act against their own economic interests. So, so like, it's just an interesting thing that like the closer you get to power, the more you have to move away from the critique that challenges power. Right. Right. I, I just think that it's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. And, and I think what's fascinating is that it, what I was trying to allude to earlier sloppily is that it's now happened in reverse. I mean, you have had people like right. um, Pastor Robert Jeffress, who literally said that Barack Obama was paving the way for the Antichrist while he was president, is now one of the closest 
Um, that's literally what he said. Is you know, which which is like, I mean, he's 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 saying a president like is paving the way for the Antichrist. Like it's like very stalwartly <laughs> critical. And yet now he is the closest, one of the closest faith advisors of the sitting president, right? And so well, um, I knew I knew it was going to be an atheist Muslim Marxist that would do it. So. <laughs> Well, all you know, it's just all at the same time. That was always a confusing thing about like Barack Obama's 2008 campaign is that you would you would and I remember this because I mentioned the book. Like I, I I worked at the campaign at the time, and you would talk to voters who would say, "Well, you know, um, I heard he's I heard he's a Muslim," and then you're like, "Okay, well, it wouldn't matter if he was, but you know, we need to talk about how you know the, he actually is a committed Christian." Um, and they're like, "Yeah, well, I heard he had that crazy pastor," and you're like, "No, but but you just said that he was a Muslim, so like what?" <laughs> Which is it? And it was just, and it was just like you know these 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 things that people inculcated into like a, a batch of criticisms of Obama's campaign. So, well, that, you know, this gets into back to that right left divide, I suppose, uh, between the sort of the 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 religious um, uh, energy that I was talking about. Because one thing I remember is that, you know, uh, in 2008, you know, I was, I was just graduating from college. I think I had favored Obama because I read his book, um, uh, Dreams of My Father, which I, I would say is the, the, the best book ever written by a presidential candidate and certainly much better than his 2006 book. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it was really, you know, hard. To, there wasn't a whole lot of policy difference between uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, when you got right down to it, like they're proposing very similar things, um, similar health care plans. Uh, and and so when the Reverend Wright stuff came out, I was like, hell, yes, this guy is speaking my language. Maybe Obama's <laughs> a secret radical. And, you know, <laughs> he's been the whisper campaign in reverse. I see. <laughs> Yeah, we we I, I could uh, edit in the little the actual Jeremiah Wright thing, which, which is to this day it's absolutely correct. It's it's all about you know um, uh, all of our history of supporting coups and right wing dictators and uh, slavery and Japanese internment and saying like basically these are bad. God doesn't like it when you when you do horrible things. And the United States of America government, when it came to treating her citizens of Indian descent fairly, she failed. She put them on reservations. When it came to treating her citizens of Japanese descent fairly, she failed. She put them in internment prison camps. When it came to treating the citizens of African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God bless America. No, no, no. Not God bless America. God damn America that's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating her citizens as less than human. God damn America as long as she tries to act like she is God and she is 
is supreme. It's like, well, yeah, okay, I can I can definitely agree with this. And the interesting thing for me was, you know, as what I was like 22 years old at the time, uh, you know, when when I was in high school in rural Colorado, you know, as as I've said before on the podcast, I, I was. Uh, really alienated from, from Christianity, uh, in, be, because of the, the hypocrisy of, uh, you know, the, the conservative Christian denominations, you know, the, the people who really had no idea what was in the Bible, had no idea of the history of their own faith, you know, I would make a game of going around to ask Methodists who John Wesley was, and, um, you know, would do the same, uh, uh, you know, drinking and premarital sex as everyone else, but would pretend as if they were these moral, you know, paragons. And so that pushed me away from religion, you know, to, to becoming like a pretty hardcore atheist for a time. Um, but, you know, be, I think part of that reason was because there was there was really not any other tradition, either in the community or na- nationally, pointing out that, you know, not only are these like conservative Christians, not the only Christians, like especially in its more extreme forms, right wing, you know, Christian nationalism, as you point out, is like arguably not even Christian at all. If you take any of the precepts in the Bible seriously, you know, it's an identity uh, for like the 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 white sort of capitalist uh, 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 dominant class, and you know the the teachings of Jesus about caring for the poor and the sick and the and and immigrants and people in prison. These things get no consideration whatsoever. And like the stuff like the prosperity gospel, as I've also said, I mean, <laughs> arguably blasphemous. I mean, this is the worshiping mammon. You know, the um, and yet there was no uh, there, there was nobody, you know, in my sort of like limited high school, you know, worldview saying that, like, this is not the only way, you know, in order for me to get the, the, the things, you know, to, to know about right wing hypocrisy in that area was to just read the Bible myself. But then it was just so that I could point at the at the conservatives and say, hi, you hypocrites. You know, you don't know all the teachings of Leviticus about not planting crops in the same kind of field. You don't know your own text. You know, <laughs> one of those really annoying people. Did you know that Ryan has yeah. read the Bible, what, three times, is it? Three? Uh, twice, I think, from, from front to back. Though I couldn't, you know, I've surely forgotten most of it. Um, <laughs> don't call me Shirley. You, damn you, it. You still- but, but that's J- still more Jack, exposure than the average American. So I, that, that's, right. that is Jack. You know that what this means. This means you now have to explain white Christian nationalism and the prosperity gospel. Yeah, <laughs> right. We can start yeah, with that. And it's relevant because you were saying, you know, this is arguably blasphemous. This is like just to be clear, like many leaders of the religious left um, or you know, religious progressives have been very clear in saying that that is that that. Prosperity gospel and Christian nationalism are heretical and blasphemous. That and they're saying what, that you've mastered more Jack. Than, you've mastered divinity. What do you say? <laughs> I, I, you know, I, it's one of those things. Where, one of the things that we're taught in divinity school is that religion takes multiple permutations, and that um, and that faith is a very difficult thing to define. Period. Much less to cement. However, one thing that I've argued for a while is that. There's a reason that different religious groups police their borders, as it were, that there are lines in the sand that they can draw. 
And, you know, under most traditional understandings of, of Christian dogma and, and Christian theology, there is a reason why you have even had people like Russell Moore, who's head of the political arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, refer to um, the prosperity gospel as heretical or blasphemous. You know, there's a reason that you're, you're even hearing those kind of criticisms um, from within the conservative Christian house. Which makes right. the particularity of Trump's, you know, like access and lifting up of this group really unusual. I mean, this is a, a, a group that has had so much criticism, even among conservative Christians, that, that they've kind of been apolitical until Trump was elected. Now, for your, for your listeners, um, just to give an explanation. So the, uh, the prosperity gospel, it varies a little bit depending on which, you know, version or flavor you're, you're, um, interacting with. But it is often articulated as this way of looking at the universe through a, a, a Christian articulation of saying that money is good. It is evidence of blessings and that and it is often if you just love God enough that these blessings will come to you. And sometimes that's tweaked into. And the, way, the best way that you can express that love for God is to give this pastor your money. And if you just give that pastor your money enough. Um, then, then you, you will be blessed by God. And then the, the pastor actually ends up becoming the, the proof of concept there, saying, you know, look, look how wealthy I am, clearly, and I'm your pastor. So clearly this great faith <laughs> results in great wealth. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it's been widely criticized. Um, and there's a lot of prosperity gospel preachers and those who've been attached to the movement. For instance, Paula White, who um, now rejects the, the, um, the title and the theology of it, but like for in her past has repeatedly been criticized for being a prosperity gospel pastor. You know, she's now arguably the closest faith advisor to Donald Trump. And this this theology has its roots. Um, you can argue that it has in some ways existed in various forms throughout religious history. But the American contemporary version is arguably rooted back in the 1930s when you actually had a um, uh, an alignment of corporations um, who were kind of miffed that, about all this New Deal stuff that was happening. And um, and all these like liberal Christians who were being elected into office who were following what's often called the social gospel, um, which is this version of Christianity that was, you know, a big part of the labor movement and actually arguably helped spark what we now call American progressivism in general. And so these corporations um, is profiled in the book by Kevin Cruz, which you should really check out if you get a chance. Um, but the but like they they really kind of profile. Um, they really kind of outline this idea that money is good. And that that's a key part of America. Now, interestingly, at the same time, when they were kind of giving this kind of proto version of prosperity gospel theology, they also started championing what many people refer to as Christian nationalism, which, Ryan, you pointed out, and I talk about this in the book, is probably more accurately described as an identity than a theology. It's this fusion of America imagery and the um, and like passion for the United States um, and and like uh, an attachment to a Bible and an American flag in the same space is this idea that to be an American um, is to is to um, ha- be a Christian and a very particular kind of Christian. And um, and that original 1930s movement that I kind of talk about a little bit in the book did both attach both the, the, the idea that money is good. Um, the capitalist structure of the United States is good. And so is you know Christianity. And that is what it means to be an American. And now, fast forward to 2016 and 2020, you've seen this kind of resurgence in conservative Christian circles of, you know, what it means, of, you know, these, these American flags and these American causes, particularly attached to Trump 
in particular um, is what it means to be an American. You, you like, and this idea that America is a Christian nation. And to be clear, they often will dismiss progressive Christians as not really Christians. So they really be a very particular version of um, of, of what it means to be Christian, of, of means to be a Christian in the United States. But that is where we kind of get to the modern day, where we now have people who are stalwartly Christian nationalist and stalwartly prosperity gospel preachers who are now in Trump's immediate orbit. Jack, can I can I ask you, I you know, for for Easter. Uh, for for the Westerners, the Protestants and the Catholics, uh, I received an email from someone uh, that had a Happy Easter subject, and in between Happy and Easter was an American flag. I kid you not. Um, wow. How how long how long has this nonsense been going on for? I'm just curious. Like how long have have people said Happy Easter with the American flag as part of the message? Do you think? So that one's new to me, uh, but but I will but I will say so. There, what's, what's interesting is that um, so you could argue that you know mixtures of of um, nationalism or at least an attachment to what it means to be American and Christianity or it's all of this the American project ex- itself. Well, right. but that idea has mel- morphed over time. Um, actually, some of the earliest, you know, during the American Revolution, there was a whole group of Christians that really wanted the United States to be a theocracy. Um, and we're kind of stalwartly in, in support of that. But ironically, they were actually their, their version of theocracy was one that might be seen as deeply economically progressive um, by today's standards. <laughs> um, and they lost. And so but really um, this 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 Christian nationalist sentiment, this this idea that what it means to be in America is to have an American flag in your wall right above your Bible. Um, and, and again, this is very popular with people who may not even go to church that often. It's not necessarily right, right. exhibited in what we might think of as this elite evangelical Christian culture. Um, it, it often kind of has this uh, this resonance, not just with Protestants, but also some Catholics and even some outside that immediate um, you know, group that we often call the religious right. That, you know, it's just this identity. It's this this public image of what it means to be an American that often leaves a lot of people in the progressive coalition out. Um, and, and so it's just become really popular right now. And some argue that the, tr- the best definition of that is white Christian nationalism. Like you, there's been a lot of um, sociologists recently that have studied this phenomenon and noted that people who identify with Christian nationalism, one, were more likely to support Trump and two, to, um, to think that, you know, that, that, that police are doing the right thing. Uh, more often than you would find in progressive camps who think the police are not always doing the right thing. You see these, um, they, they are more, people who identify with Christian nationalism are also more likely to support gun rights in a very specific de- definition than you're going to find in progressive camps. And when you add all those together, and they're also more likely to be skeptical of refugees and Muslim Americans, mm-hmm. and you can start to see how this becomes a, a, a really, um, you know, uh, it starts to build the lattice work for what became Trumpism. Um, right. And you, you, you have you people like Steve Bannon, line, yeah. don't you? I mean, you see uh, the religious right uh, is so pervasive when it comes to whether it's the Muslim ban, which is incredible, the Muslim and refugee ban uh, that 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 they're you know propping that up, or or whether it's um, you know any number of injustices. It seems to me I, I like how much you emphasize at the end the kind of. Uh, common theological interpretive approach is one that understands postmodern philosophy and deconstructs and and, and realizes uh, where people are coming from when they're kind of 
taking and applying their uh, interpretive lens for for their religious beliefs. And so it strikes me that like whether it's creation care and the environment or anything else, the religious right tends to interpret things in support of extraction and, and oppression and the use of power to the benefit of those that are doing the interpreting. Whereas the religious left seems to understand kind of like the multifarious ways in which people are harmed by that power and, and are trying to kind of make sense of things in that, in that fashion. So, uh, yeah, I, I just I just wonder how you interpret and how you can um, kind of edify us on um, that the religious divide when it comes to kind of translating religion into political power contests. Yeah, I mean, I think you know there. I think many a progressive faith activist would argue and has argued that the religious right, uh, more often than not, really wants to uphold the status quo. What, and, and particularly a very uh, a version of status quo that privileges them. Um, and when they talk about religious freedom, for instance, a lot of progressive religious activists argue that they are leaving out of that definition of religious freedom people like Native American, um, Native American spiritual beliefs who consistently lose in court battles when they argue that certain lands that are being um, you know torn up by corporations or the government um, are actually sacred to them. And you know that you, you have this sort of version of what it means to be religious. That is interpreted through um, one conservative Christian lens, largely, and I think that that that's been a criticism of the religious right for quite some time because it just leaves out this plethora um, of faith communities that um, occupy a different theological space, right? So one of the I, I mentioned this in the book, um, you know, people often forget one of the reasons that North Carolina. Uh, when, when, you know, the, the, um, lawsuit was passed that allowed for, um, uh, was, was, was decided, um, that allowed for same-sex marriage in that state, that lawsuit was brought by progressive people of faith. It was brought by progressive clergy. The entire United Church of Christ signed on to that lawsuit, um, because in the state of North Carolina, they had passed this ban on same-sex marriage and it conflicted with some existing laws that arguably criminalized um, the rights of some progressive clergy who, by the tenets of their faith, are not only allowed to ordain same-sex marriages and officiate same-sex marriages, but actually called by God to do so, that um, that that they, they, their faith was criminalized by that case. And so mm-hmm. the case ended up getting... Um, uh, ended up getting decided on 14th Amendment grounds as opposed to First Amendment grounds, you know, freedom of religion. But even then, the ruling noted that this was like seemed to be um, unduly um, harming these people of faith and these progressive faith communities. And that lawsuit kind of exposes how when we think about faith in a political context in the United States of America, for the past three or four decades, it has been uniformly decided almost always by these sort of conservative Christian voices. And that they are deciding what it means to be religious. And the truth is far more complicated and far more um, complex. And so the religious left often speaks from that much broader understanding of what it means to be religious and arguably older understanding of what it means to be religious. Um, and, and so we and, and I think lost in the midst of that is that part of the reasons that we ended up having so many um uh, laws protecting religious freedom in the United States. Historically, a lot of historians argue they weren't designed to protect what the religious people who are most you know, most in power. They're designed to protect those who are not. 
And uh, I think a lot of religious activists um, in, on the left at this point in history argue that more that far more often those laws are being used to protect those in power as opposed to those who are powerless. Um, and so I feel like, you know, the Standing Rock and um, the Mauna Kea protests in Hawaii are often examples lifted up recently as saying, you know, the, the faith of these indigenous activists just isn't as taking, taken as seriously in the courts or in the legislature as a conservative Christian who's opposing abortion or same-sex marriage. So I think there's deep theological differences there, as you noted. Um, but I also think there's just like a structural and intellectual difference in terms of how religion is defined in the courts and in our public square. Yeah. So um, to to that that brings back the the sort of uh, second half of the the thing I was talking about earlier, which is you know the the kind of you know as we had a Tara Burton on the podcast uh, a couple oh, yeah. of episodes ago. And she she mentions in her book uh, something you mentioned that the the so-called religious nuns, which are the fastest growing and probably, you know, within a, a, a decade or two will be like a majority of the country. And N-O-N-E-S. N-O-N-E-S. Are are, uh, are are not they are not hardcore atheists for the most part. Most the, yeah. um, a majority of them, if I'm not mistaken, express some some kind of you know vague spiritual belief, not yes. like serious you know rigorous materialism you know like Richard Dawkins or something. And yet you know as as I was saying, there's there's not been you know d- despite I mean there there are people making an outreach to that group to say that like right wing Christianity is not the only kind. But they're not quite breaking through, I would say. And so can can you tell us a little bit about, you know, you have a number of a number of folks, uh, some socialist Christians. You have the Native American activists you, you were talking about, the Mauna Kea protests, people who are trying to expand that definition of, you know, religiosity, both both for for Christians and across the board and to to get, you know, the courts and the rest of uh you know, society to take it seriously. Right. I, I, I think that, you know, that you, you have this broader understanding. Um, oh, oh, sorry. Can you, can you repeat the very tail end of your question? I got, I got really excited about something you said and I want to hear the other part. <laughs> well, just whether, whether or not, you know, the describe to us the, the, the people who are trying to, you know, redefine Christianity to be something yeah. more like what it once was. As well as the the folks who are trying to just expand the definition of religion generally to mean something other than you know Christian nationalism, right? I, I think that um, some would argue that the the folks who are trying to hold the line over the the, uh, the the core tenets of say Christianity that you were talking about earlier, who they argue that core tenets include um, welcoming the stranger, feeding the poor, things that Jesus talks about repeatedly in the Gospels. Um, they would argue that they've always been there to some degree. However, that doesn't mean that they're occupying the same space in the public sphere. So, for instance, I have this um, chapter on economics in the book where I talk about the people of faith that were at the Occupy movement, but also, you know, this new crop of Christian socialists who in some ways are reclaiming the tradition of Christian socialism that permeated the early 20th century and gave birth to, the, as I mentioned earlier, the modern progressive movement. Um, and, and those, those organizations look different, right? Like they're the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America has its own religious caucus. Um, and you know, that, that includes people like Cornell West, who has been a stalwart, um, 
uh, you know, speaker for Bernie Sanders, as well as um, people who teach at Union Seminary, one of the deep, most progressive seminaries um, in the United States, who, who you know, they, I, one of the professors there I talked to for my economics chapter, he's actually spoken again for Bernie and, um, and you know, talks, and it's been a longtime member of the um, DSA, and actually he was there before it was called the DSA in its previous iteration. Um, you have people like Linda Sarsour, who is also a proud um, Muslim and a proud Muslim American activist, you know, one of the co-chairs of the Women's March, um, and is also a DSA member in this, this arg- who argues that her faith, her, her Muslim faith, um, supports this idea of, you know, democratic socialism, or at least a more just um, distribution, as she sees it, um, of wealth and of money. And so, you know, they are tapping into streams of their faith that are very old and that they are trying to actualize those in a political context there, right down to, and people forget, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, she, yep. what, she, her, what, according to her, and she's actually been more vocal about this since my book, my, my book manuscript is, pu- was published. And so I'm like frustrated because she actually, you know, has now talked more about her faith journey. Um, because when she went to Standing Rock, that experience she credits with inspiring her to run for office. And she describes that experience in Standing Rock as a spiritual experience and that it was this spiritual religious thing that helped, you know, they, for her, she's a Catholic, but the spirituality of um, the indigenous activists there and the, and the spirituality of the various different faith groups that showed up inspired her. And she is now, you know, given multiple different talks in front of faith groups um, across the country, um, you know, and, and also particularly in New York, to the point where now when she was stumping for Bernie this last, uh, you know, Democratic primary, she was talking about she was dropping scripture references yep. into her into her um, her stump speeches in front of voters, you know, in Iowa. Love of neighbor, right? She had this yeah. tremendous reception, especially in Iowa, I think, um, you know, talking about love of neighbor and how that translates to kind of the, the newfound slogan for the Bernie campaign at that point, which was, are you willing to fight? for somebody you don't know right exactly and so and the truth is you know she's those activists have always been there and they have um as you know ryan they've there's been a, a tough go of things in that a lot of people have felt turned off from religion um who are progressive and young for or maybe not young for quite some time because of the religious right you know some people who have distanced themselves and no longer affiliate they're called the religiously unaffiliated also called the nuns as you noted um, because when they answer a per- survey question, what do you affiliate with? They say, uh, what religion do you affiliate with? They say none. And uh, they have been turned off because of the political activism of the religious right. And now, you know, and I think there was, and I mentioned this a little bit in the book, there was some tension in, in the early 21st century between, you know, faith-based activists who were trying to get involved with, you know, the Democratic Party and also progressive campaigns and these kind of um, religious nuns who were kind of really, either whether they were atheist, agnostic, or just kind of spiritual but not religious, kind of turned off by any um, marriage of faith and politics. But what I think is interesting, and I think you see this in multiple chapters, is that uh, over the course, beginning under Obama's presidency and now leading into Trump's presidency, because so many of these faith-based activists have tried so hard, in when you know whether they're in the streets um, or outside the Capitol buildings, to tr- to trumpet a version of their faith 
that doesn't look like the religious right. They've earned back the respect of some of these more secular-based activists. And I think the religious left actually is arguably best at activism um, compared to you know the religious right that turns out to be really good in the courts and at the ballot box. And so, um, so I do think what's been interesting is now you're starting to see these more uniform coalitions where there's more comfort with having faith in the room in progressive spaces than you might have found back in you know, 1999 or 2000 when there was arguably way more religious people um, right. in, in the Democratic coalition. And so I think that says a lot to uh, that speaks a lot to these activists who have earned it in some cases literally in the streets of protests. Um, earn this credibility with their fellow progressives. And so I, I think street cred, Jack, that. they, they have yep. the street cred. Well, this is the cool thing that you're bringing out in this book I, of, of many things you're bringing out is, is, you know, at Occupy, there was like hashtag Occupy the Bible, you know, in Charlottesville, along with Antifa, you had right. Re- religious activists. And there's this right. cool anecdote that you talk about with Cornell West and this interaction between, um, the religious left and uh, Antifa or Antifa, yeah. however you want to say their name. So maybe talk a little bit about that, because I, I think this, this speaks to that kind of uh, intersection and, and perhaps uh, the possibilities of, of future coalitions. Right. Um, and so, you know, th- there's there's a chapter in my book where I kind of talk about the role of faith communities in the Black Lives Matter movement. And, and a big chunk of that chapter is dedicated to Ferguson, where many of the activists on the ground in Ferguson um, weren't connected to the church. And that was a departure from a lot of historical, um, you know, uh, racial justice activism within African-American communities where the religious um, religious institutions had played such a robust role. And but when you get to, um, you know, uh, Ferguson, these faith communities weren't at the corner of that. And some of the in, in case in some cases, the faith communities actually discouraged protesters who were on the ground there. And so there were these clergy members that felt that they had to earn back the respect of these activists um, in the streets of Ferguson. And so by the time you got to Charlottesville, you had some of these um, these clergy members who had kind of cut their teeth in place and in people of faith in uh, Ferguson who were then showing up to, uh, to you know stare down white supremacists in Charlottesville. And you have this moment where uh, people, and, and there was a lot of coverage of the clashes between Antifa and the white supremacists in Charlottesville. But there was relatively little coverage of this very vibrant and large gathering of religious clergy and faith leaders from across the religious spectrum who showed up to counter protest against the white supremacists there. And I chronicle how. Um, you know, there were the, there was this torch rally outside um, the, the university right there in Charlottesville the night before the big march uh, around the Robert E. Lee statue. And that was right across the street from a church that was packed to the gills with faith leaders and people of faith who were counter protesting white supremacists. And the next day, though, several of those faith leaders went and lined up in, uh, um, outside the entrance to the park and locked arms to block these um, white supremacists from getting into the, the the park to protest. And so what ended up happening is that you found um, some of the, the, the um, Antifa members actually you know, thought that the clergy members were on the side of the white supremacists. And so they kind of yelled at them. They're like, what are you doing here? And there had to be this quick negotiation where these clergy members were saying, no, we're here with you. We're here to at least you know protest these white supremacists. And so when the white supremacists um, came through and actually, you know, charged through the lines of the clergy, they tried to like re- regroup really quickly. And they looked, and according to those who were there, they told me that they looked down the street and saw another group of white supremacists coming towards them, bearing down 
on them. And the Antifa that had previously um, kind of sparred with these clergy members suddenly rushed to their defense and flooded the street to fight back the white supremacists against them. And there were there have been all these criticisms against um, Antifa among liberals and progressives. But it's interesting to hear that the clergy who were there that day, they told me that they feel that the Antifa actually saved their lives that day. Um, at least that's yeah, the quote it, from Cornell West. It turns out that fighting fascism and revolutionary love are compatible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good for them. Um, well, let me see. I guess we're, we're up over an hour here, um, and that's all the questions I had. Um, Alexi, anything else you want to add? I, I do have one more line of inquiry, Jack, and I'm, I'm curious what you think about this, because, you know, for the present 2020 uh, electoral political campaign, you know, you had and you documented from Booker to Castro to Harris to Mayor Pete, uh, a number of um, faith centric politicians and campaigns in many ways, but also this kind of beautiful but sad um, quotation from someone who said, you know what? We don't just want thoughts and prayers. We need action. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it really struck me because there did seem to be this disconnect, like as great as Obama was in many ways, uh, for example, he is not Trump, but he was the deporter in chief. And he also, you know, bent to pressure from activists to to not abandon the sanctuary movement and not to sick ice on people. But like he wasn't tremendously helpful and neither are these candidates in pushing forward the religious left's fight for justice. And so there, there does seem to be this this need for the activist voices that are revolutionary, like Reverend Barber and others, or the New Sanctuary Movement, um, to actually influence those who have the political power, uh, you know, formally, right? And, and there seems to be this this tension. Uh, it's it's easier, like we've talked about before, with the religious right, when when those in power themselves and and their kind of cohort benefits, right, in supporting and propping up capital. Um, But for the left, it's tougher because you're asking people in power to basically act against their own interests or the interests of the donor class. So so what do you think about how the religious left can can in the future have increasing um, power and influence to actually bring about the justice they say they're about? Yeah, so this is the existential question, I think, that really kind of haunts the religious left. And I should be clear, you know, I keep using that term religious left, but most of the people, the prominent leaders of the movement that I profile in the book actually reject that term because they don't want to, they, you know, Reverend Barber, for instance, refers to the religious left as quote unquote too puny to understand what he's really doing, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that comes in my reporting, it seemed to derive from this, um, this comfort with uh, attaching themselves to any specific system of power, because to be prophetic is to be willing to criticize whoever's in power, whether that was Donald Trump, which is, you know, for a lot of progressives, a pretty easy thing to critique, or um, Barack Obama, which one of the things you'll note in, in my book is that a lot of these movements I chronicle actually began under Obama. They just got supercharged under Trump. Right. And um, But I think, you know, the existential question that haunts them is whether or not all the activism can result in systemic change and whether or not that they're able to exert power. Now, through the course of this Democratic primary, there was an interesting thing that happened, which is that when the Poor People's Campaign held a presidential candidates forum in Washington, D.C., 
um, and last summer, in 2019, nine candidates showed up. And the, the 10th one wasn't there because Julian Castro wasn't able to get uh, make the plane um, to get there. Um, but they had nine candidates, including Joe Biden, including Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris. You know, these these power hitters within the field wanted to be there to, to get FaceTime with these activists, um, with Liz, Reverend Liz Theo Harris and Reverend Barber. And that's really interesting to me because when Netroots had their conference um, around, you know, roughly around the same time and also had a presidential candidates forum, they barely got four people there, four different candidates right. there for theirs. And that's a really, you know, established progressive gathering. And so one of the things that seems to have emerged over the course of Trump's um, presidency is that these religious left activists have now really started to occupy positions of influence within progressivism writ large. I mean, there's a reason why now Reverend Barber is on MSNBC all the time. Um, there's a reason that you hear their voices quite frequently and like as, as moral exemplars. I think it was the New York Times or the New Yorker recently did this whole like, let's talk about the pandemic from the perspective of morality. And one of the voices they made sure to include was William Barber's. I don't think that's coincidental. But um, when you one of the questions that haunts them is that if Trump were to be defeated in um, in November and the Democrat were to take power, would the religious left be in a position to influence the agenda of the Democratic, um, whoever the Democratic uh, president would be? And if they were, you know, what would that agenda look like? Would they have a specific policy agenda that they would push, um, presumably Joe Biden at this point to enact? And so because uh, without that common enemy that you saw when when William Barber um, helped amass the Moral Monday movement in, in North Carolina and now Trump, do they have the same influence? Do they have the same activist, um, you know, chutzpah, right. as it were, in, in the absence of that, um, you know, common enemy? And so I do think that there's there's a there's a lingering question mark around that. However, I will say that. From near as I can tell, someone who's been covering this community for several years now, this is the most well-positioned I've ever seen them to, as activists, not as people who are, you know, communicating through an intermediary, as activists with direct access to candidates and positions of power, the most powerful I've ever seen them. Nice. Now, I am all in favor of promoting Biden to defeat Trump in part so that Biden can be the new enemy against which we could fight. So, so there, 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 there is that. Well, I mean, um, you know, but, the religious left, well, I, I can assure you, I, I, I would be shocked if I did not see some of these same activists and organizations, if Joe Biden disappointed them on any policy proposal, that they wouldn't protest right. him too. I mean, that's a big part they of the religious have the left. Being, they have yeah. the chutzpah. Right. And, and and Ryan, I don't I don't know if you mind if we go a little bit longer. Look, we had Spross on for 90 minutes the other day. So c- come on. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> Jack, your dissertation, believe it or not, as far as I know, relates to the pandemic situation and uh, digital church. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. let's talk about that for a minute, if, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah, um, so, that... so what what did you study and how is it relevant now? Yeah, so when I was in divinity school, um, I, I, the, the two different papers, one was my master's thesis and one was my, um, was a major project for a class, was I actually focused one on virtual worship, this online worship, um, service that I did, because I, it was for my postmodern worship class. Um, my final project, um, was a, was a, an all day worship service, you know, looking at using Facebook as the medium, not as me broadcasting a service and people listening to it, but these interactive, um, 
uh, you know, exercises, whether that was, you know, people submitting hymns, people praying together, submitting prayers for prayers of the people. And at the time, it was seen as this really experimental, like edgy thing to think about. There were a few people who were doing this kind of work. Um, you know, this guy, this pastor who at the, at the time or around that time was moderator of the Presbyterian Church USA, um, Bruce Ray's Chow, Reverend Bruce Ray's Chow. He was he had this whole uh, project called Twitter Worship or Twership where he would kind of mimic these sorts of things online. And again, it was all seen as like, oh, this is like interesting and let's have this deep theological conversation about what this actually means, what this kind of worship means. Um, and, and it was you know really popular in these like kind of more fringy progressive religious circles. Um, but it was seen as far fetched. And now fast forward to the pandemic and suddenly this has become the way that millions of people worship. And uh, and actually, Bruce Ray's Chow is an interesting example because he, at the time, um, was playing with twership. And now, in, in, in this day and age, he was someone who I, I wrote a story about him recently where he was uh, having a, a Zoom worship service. And during the worship service, he would encourage all of the parishioners to come and bring you know their own elements for communion. And so they would bring their own piece of bread or a donut or a bagel and you know coffee or just the wine they had around their house. And when it came down time to do communion, they would all break their bread on their individual screen together and um, and then drink whatever they had lying around. And that was how they did communion. And technically, the PCUSA initially, the Presbyterian Church USA, his denomination initially came out and said, that's not OK. But then a, a few weeks later, um, the, the leadership of the denomination came out and said, actually, it is right now. This is a thing that we're allowing people to do. And so it was what's experimental is now, you know, there is there is permission across the denomination for people to engage in this ancient ritual of Eucharist and, and communion, um, you know, in a new way. And also my, my bastard, my actual thesis was on religion in outer space, which I know it sounds weird. Um, <laughs> but it, it was, I mean, well, but, but it was, it was centered around this, um, this question of what happens when commu religious communities move from one place to another, or more often than not, what that means is what happens to religious rituals when resources are strapped. And so, you know, right. one of the most famous examples of religious ritual happening in space is that Buzz Aldrin, when they landed on the moon in Apollo 11, there was like this hour of time, but when they were sitting in the lander before they got on the lunar surface, and uh, it turns out Buzz Aldrin actually had communion on the moon. And he had that with the permission, he was also Presbyterian, interestingly, um, with permission of, you know, clergy who actually kind of participated with him in a, in a broad sense back on Earth. And so all that means is that you, what you find quite often throughout history is that religious ritual and religious communities will mend to circumstances when they are when things change around them when the when they run out of resources and of course in the midst of a pandemic when you know gathering in person while some communities have continued to do so um, and much to the the criticism of many others um, you know many of these communities are finding new ways to engage with the rituals because it is the only way that they can have um, their community that they seek. And I, and I will say this actually interestingly circles back um, to the religious left because you have now found that a lot of these activists um, who are in the religious left have found ways to take you know, their, their activism online as well and while they are doing that inculcate religious ritual into the virtual space. So, I love um, that. I love that, yeah. Jack. M may that imagination and creativity also apply to getting rid of the rich as a class so that they don't have to pass through the eye of the needle. <laughs> yeah. For, you know, for their own good, you know, we're talking about your, for your their uh, souls. Yeah. 
your er- everlasting uh, uh, damnation here, you know? It's exactly. worth paying Nobody some more taxes that. to avoid that. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. Well, thank you, Jack. It's been a pleasure. Any last words that you would uh, like to offer here? I, I hope you come back again. We can have more words. But for now, anything else you want to you want to say? No, I just thank y'all so much for having me on. It's a, it's a I, 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 it's great to hear y'all's voices in general and also get to discuss a topic that I've probably already bored you guys with in the past to begin with. Um, so no way. Uh, um, thank you for you are many things, sir, but you are not boring. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank y'all so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Everyone needs to buy the book. Yeah, go ahead, Ryan. Yeah, the book is called American Profits. We'll link it in the description. Um, Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.